I'm Tommy from Indiana. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me and you. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Welcome to The Sound of Young America. I'm your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart, broadcasting live on tape this week from our brand new studios in beautiful Silver Lake, Los Angeles, California, still in my apartment. We haven't moved that far up in the world. Better neighborhood, but still recording the show at home. Um, Speaking of recording the show at home, this week's show not recorded at home. In fact, let's go to the stage of the Philly Improv Theater in Philadelphia, where we taped an interview with director of the Mutter Museum, Dr. Robert Hicks. Now, the Mutter Museum is a kind of terrifying nightmare slash fascinating history world. It's full of collections of hundreds of skulls from the 19th century with the age, ethnicity, religion and cause of death cataloged, um, fetuses in jars, crazy specula, a giant skeleton next to a midget skeleton, all kinds of weird, upsetting and amazing things about the full spectrum of the human body. So uh, let's go to the stage and my conversation with Dr. Robert Hicks, the director of the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. So happy to have you on the program. So happy to visit the museum the other day. It was very, uh, or excuse me, earlier this morning. It was very exciting, very terrifying. Reminded me of my own mortality all all too often, over and over, repeatedly, so I couldn't push it out of my mind. Um, oh, first of all, what, uh, this is a medical museum. Are you a medical doctor? No. What kind of doctor are you, Dr. Hicks? I'm the fake kind. I'm the PhD <laughs> kind. So I could play a doctor on TV. Okay, excellent. So how do you get to the point where you become the director of this operation? Like, what are, what are the qualifications that one has? What, 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 are the, what are the reasons that one gets this gig? Well, in my case, I just slept with every member of the Board of Trustees. (laughs) It was easy. Um, Fair enough. No, it's it's probably a characteristic of the museum world that people come to this with all kinds of strange backgrounds. And uh, uh, in my case, it's a bit of history. It's a bit of other things. um, But people tend to have very diverse backgrounds for this uh, coming from such areas as law enforcement, the military, um, get arrested for being drunk, whatever it is. But one thing we all have in common in this business, uh, we have intense fascination with being able to tell historical stories through stuff, artifacts, in our case, specimens, texts, artifacts of all kinds. I've even brought a few to show you tonight. We're going to get to that. I, there's a rule is that I'm not allowed to know what these artifacts are. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a ninny, so I'm a little worried about them. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, what medicine was like uh, when the Mutter Museum was founded in, what, the 1830s? Is that right? Late 1840s, 150 years ago this year, the deed of gift. So what what was medicine in the United States like then? Medicine was quite different from today. For one thing, doctors didn't have the social status that they have now. Uh, Secondly, people did not expect to go to hospitals for treatment. They were treated in their homes. Um, it's also a time when there's no anesthesia. And in fact, Dr. Mutter, our namesake, was one of the first doctors in Philadelphia to introduce anesthesia. 
Uh, and it was not uniformly uh, um, greeted with enthusiasm when it was first uh, applied. Um, he, also, this is an era before antisepsis, but between that time, 150 years ago, and about 1900, medicine undergoes huge transformation. And so physicians who lived through that era really saw a scientific revolution in medicine. I was would really have found it unrecognizable. I was really impressed to read that Dr. Mutter had gone to Europe to get his medical education. Um, and in Europe, uh, getting your doctor's license was a four-year degree. Here in the United States, it was a two-year degree. It wasn't even that. Which is sort of like what you need to operate a forklift or something. <laughs> there, there was a range of medical practitioners. There were uh, surgeons that you could see who... Uh, were accustomed to doing things with knives and a lot of blood and cutting bone. And there were physicians who dispensed medicine through lectures and demonstrations, but without actually getting the hands-on. Uh, in this country, in the mid-19th century, you didn't have to have any university qualifications to be a physician. Most people just learned it through apprenticeship. And in fact, when the Civil War began, and there was this immediate need for surgeons, quite a few surgeons who enlisted in the Army had actually never operated on anybody. Jeez. <laughs> um, what, was the, what was the original purpose of the collection? It wasn't for public radio hosts to go and gawk and feel slightly faint and very mortal. No, it was uh, not intended to be a public thing. The collection was intended for medical education. What was collected and what was exhibited followed the curriculum in some universities, University of Pennsylvania being a leading first institution to do this, uh, it was meant to teach. So physicians who were fellows of the college, it was never a college in the sense that a university is a college. Uh, these physicians met, shared ideas. In fact, in the early days of the college, they used to haul their patients in and say, guess what I saw this week? Take a look. Drop your drawers <laughs> and show the audience. So there was a lot of that going on. Uh, so it, very different kind of medical culture. But that's what it was. And it wasn't really until relatively recently that it became a big public place. And so, in a way, the museum collection is a bit skewed because it was meant to be pathological anatomy. Physicians all knew what normal looked like. They want to see what abnormal looks like. So our collection is very heavily weighted towards that. You have this huge collection of skulls. Um, that uh, was a, a later bequest. It did come from Dr. Mutter, if I remember mm -hmm. correctly. Um, and it's categorized as various, very specific, like age and, and a con medical condition mm -hmm. in some cases. One, one says uh, suicide after discovery of theft. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. yeah. um, why, why was it important to have so many skulls, for example? Why, why was it important to have a, a, an array of 80? Um, actually, it's about 100, and it's one of our most iconic collections, this wall of skulls. That particular collection was the most expensive purchase in the history of the museum, and it had a very interesting history. It was an anatomist from Vienna who assembled these skulls, and they were all from a section of people in Eastern Europe. So it's a cross-section of population from the mid-19th century. And uh, the data that the doctor collected is inscribed on each skull. And as you say, it's the name, the occupation, cause of death, what, uh, where this person grew up, and religion was also considered important. And the reason that collection was amassed was to show variation. 
And in fact, this is the time when those ideas are coming to the fore that there's a racial hierarchy of man and races are being organized in evolutionary terms with, of course, white males at the top and everybody else farther down the scale. But one interesting argument here is that Dr. Hertel, the anatomist who did this, didn't believe in that hierarchy, and he wanted to show that increased cranial capacity did not equate to intelligence. So he had all these skulls. You look at them, and he would say, look at this range of skulls. You can't possibly assess intelligence by brain size because this is just a natural variation in a population. Today, a lot of people just find it very poignant to look at because you're staring at skulls, somebody's life history incorporated in their bone, with just the minimal words inscribed on each skull saying who this person was and just the data that was medically important. There's also a super giant, like, colon or bowel or something. That's you like real that. weird. <laughs> What's going on with this giant bowel? Ah, the, the mega colon. You uh, can tell I'm using my public radio voice at this point. Well... I, I know that the, the, the height of deformity here is a bee bite, a uh, bee sting, but uh, uh, we have one of our famous things is about an eight-foot-long colon that was taken from a man who died just short of his 30th birthday, and we have a picture of him with his enlarged abdomen. And he had a disease. In this case, the nerve endings did not form around the colon, so the body could not give instruction for the colon to take what's passing through and massage it all the way out. So instead, it backed up to the tune of about 70-some pounds. So uh, at, at this is the proximate cause of this man's death. Uh, this it, is a condition that can be now surgically remedied. So nobody has to go through life basically backing up all their fecal matter and retaining it. So, uh, of course, kids come through, and they see it, and they say, does it still have it in there? And I always say, let's pull off the glass and find out. It's, it's stuffed with straw. I mean, it's preserved. It's uh, not with its original fecal matter. But it's one of the things in the, in the museum collection that does attest that medicine does move on. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Tour posters for our live shows in New York and Philadelphia were printed by VGKids.com, who have been screen printing shirts, posters, and more in Ypsilanti, Michigan for 10 years, online at VGKids.com. Also, don't forget to check out the brand new Max Fun store at MaximumFun.org and to register for Max Fun Con 2010, happening May 7th through the 9th. Go to MaxFunCon.com. It's the Sound of Young America. This week's show recorded live on stage at the Philly Improv Theater in Philadelphia. My guest is Dr. Robert Hicks. He's the director of the Medical History Museum, the Mutter Museum. You have brought us uh, a variety of objects. Now, I, um, I, the rule was I wasn't supposed to know what... You're putting on gloves, but I don't have gloves. You don't need them. Okay, um, so the rule is I don't know what's coming. Um, what have you brought me, Dr. Hicks? Curator up here. And from behind the curtain, a, a this is, curator. This is Anna Doty, our curator. A curator from the... Uh, welcome, Anna. Thank you. Okay, now she's presenting you on essentially a velvet pillow, um, something that looks like, if I was going to say, if you said to me, what is this, I'd say maybe wood burl. Uh, that's 
kind of what it looks like. It looks like a U-shaped piece of wood knocked off of a tree, but it is, in fact, a human foot. Ooh, you. Uh, this is an example of Chinese foot binding. Chinese girls, oh, this is toes. from the 19th century. Chinese You guys, girl, I saw the toes. Don't look at them. This, this U-shape has the heel and all the toes bent in this configuration. Now, this was considered the height of beauty. This is what we're, what we're talking about here is what? Maybe five inches in length, right? Uh, perhaps uh, the whole thing, maybe about seven inches from approximately the from ankle, the to, ankle the to the toe. But much distorted. Yeah. Because what has been happened here is a young girl, this has to happen when they're young, the toes are broken and folded around the big toe to get a V-shape and to get an arch heel to essentially a consolidated toe. This is confined within a very, very small shoe and considered extremely attractive. But, of course, it has the effect of crippling the woman. Uh, and, of course, this can cause infection. It can fester. Uh, Chinese women, when young, may have learned to walk on these, but when older, they would have been crippled and unable to walk. We have things like this in the collection. They were collected by physicians to show the range of human variation and manipulation of the body. And uh, here's a good example. Yeah, that one's really way more intense than, like, earrings. Don't mistake <laughs> it for fried chicken. <laughs> Do you want to see more? Yes, absolutely. Anna, what have you got? Once again, with the velvet pillow comes Anna, the curator. Oh, good. Okay, now she's presenting a mad scientist-style jar, I would call it. I don't know what the technical name of this jar is. I'd call it a mad scientist jar or possibly a world in a jar jar. <laughs> it's the kind of jar you would use to contain it's, a it's world a in a jar. jar. It's one of our oldest specimens. Slow glass jar, but inside is a dark-looking rock thing that's about three and a half inches in diameter. It looks it's, like uh, it could be like an anemone or a coral something, something that lives yes. under the sea. Um, <laughs> Cross be between a big piece of coral, as if it's coral and covered, covered with, with bark. Um, this is, in fact, uh, a concretion of uric acid. It's a bladder stone. Oh, gracious! <laughs> now, uh, we... We that is a mighty stone, sir. It is a mighty stone, would have caused mighty pain, and this would have had to have been removed surgically. Uh, there are other ways, and we have a tool to show you for the other ways. Are you? Uh, but <laughs> this used to afflict particularly men far more than it does today owing to changes of diet and health over time. Um, people can still get stones, and bladders are usually not this big. Um, but our this is like a ping-pong ball. Oh, it's more like a baseball. A very knobby-looking baseball. Uh, our first chief justice, John Marshall, had a huge problem with these. He had upwards of 200 removed. And uh, in an area before anesthesia, there's a nice record of him uh, where... Uh, when you say record, you mean like an LP, right? <laughs> it's, it's him going to... A diary entry. <laughs> our nation's first chief justice screams in unmentionable pain. <laughs> well... On the day he had one of his stones removed, Objection, and Your this Honor. was without anesthesia. <laughs> he, 
he he had a very hearty breakfast at about 10 o'clock in the morning. The surgeon came over, and the chief justice says, well, where do you want me? And uh, splayed himself on a table, and in about 90 seconds, the job was done. Um, remember, this had to be done very quickly, no anesthesia. So uh, a tool was inserted to grab, pull out, pulverize these stones. That was the common treatment, and it was usually very successful. Well, I, I guess it depends on successful's definition. <laughs> would you like to see a tool for removing these? Uh, no, but I feel like it would be best for the program if you showed it to me. <laughs> well, would your audience like to see the tool? Okay, bring this horrible thing out. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, this sort of looks like a butane torch. It's, oh, uh, no! It has alligator mouth! <laughs> it's uh, about 18 inches long. There's a knobby end uh, to twist and turn, and the other end, it's curved, and it has... It looks like a little duck mouth with teeth. This is like and one of those screwdrivers, like one of those screwdrivers where you hold it in the middle and then turn the back. That's what it looks like with like brass and, and steel fittings, only it's uh, like a foot long with this horrible mouth at the end that I can only imagine is for grabbing my most special of places. <laughs> Better than that. It's for entering a very special place. Uh, <laughs> This is to be inserted in the uh, ureter, so it is pushed into the urethral passage, and very quickly, the sur the surgeon feels for the stone, and this is, it is possible opened. he could get a different thing. Uh, we have other tools that do the same thing in different configurations, but the reason it opens and closes so you can grab the bladder stone, pulverize it. So that the fragments can pass out of the system or be pulled out directly, and it has to be done very quickly. Again, no anesthesia for this tool. And uh, It's quite lovely. I mean, it's a lovely tool. It's a tool. very pretty instrument. It's a lovely instrument of nightmare. <laughs> I think we have one more thing. Yeah, Dr. Hicks, uh, we've got one more item back here. Oh, yes. Oh, no. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to give you a quick description of this. It um, looks like it came out of a mid-century uh, cocktail set. Uh, it's chrome or possibly steel. On one end, you've got what looks like one of those long, skinny little spoons that you use for stirring up a cocktail. I don't know what that's called. I'm not a mixologist. Um, and on the other end, uh, there's something from the movie Saw. <laughs> like a terrible... Like a s drill, a n horrible brain drill. This, this instrument is uh, later than everything else we've seen so far, but quite a few of the instruments in our collection have to do with the health of women. And uh, obstetrics, gynecology, very well represented, and you have quite a few amazing tools that, uh, that show up in that category. This pretty instrument with the corkscrew top is meant for a woman who's just given birth, where the placenta is just not coming out. <laughs> yes, folks, you put this in, you twirl it around, and let the placenta curl up on it and remove it from the woman's body. It's to remove the placenta. It's like a placenta harpoon, is what you're telling me. <laughs> well, it's... I wouldn't say harpoon, it's more like spaghetti. 
putting your fork in the spaghetti and twisting it and then taking it out. Presumably, this, this instrument would be used by a woman who herself had given birth and understood the difficulties and complexities of uh, the female, being a female in 19th century America, um, different stuff about female stuff, right? No. This is used by the male physician who assisted in the delivery of the child. He also used just a baseball bat that he just hit her with. <laughs> it's for the baby. Well, we could have brought obstetrical forceps, which look like garden tools. But There's a uh, whole collection of obstetrical forceps oh, that look like lots. garden tools. We have, we have a lot of these. Do you ever get, like, uh, does Eli Roth, director of the horrible torture p- porn films, ever just come over and he's like, I'll take one of those, one of those, <laughs> and one of those, and Saw 5 is complete. <laughs> well, actually, um, we uh, do get a lot of requests from movie people who occasionally need props. Uh, we have, in fact, a woman coming to visit us who's writing a novel that requires a lot of research on gynecological tools in 1940. She figures she can get all the primary data from us. But if anyone in your audience knows David Cronenberg... Uh, who made the film Dead Ringers, where there are some marvelous tools uh, made under sort of demented imagination, gynecological tools for operating on mutant women in the film. I'd love to get those instruments and put them on display. (laughs) (laughs) You you two are like nightmare brothers. (laughs) Well, you really have to have a certain outlook when you work with these sorts of tools in this collection. Am I going to die? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I thought you might say that. I should never have asked. <laughs> Dr. Hicks, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Dr. Robert Hicks is the director of the Mutter Museum at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. They've got an annual calendar of terrifying and upsetting things if you're interested in that sort of thing. You should also visit them if you happen to live in Philadelphia or be headed through uh, they're, they're right in the middle of downtown Philadelphia, and man, is it an amazing, amazing place. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones with special help on life, production, and direction this week from our editor, Nick White. Our theme music was provided to us by Dan Wally, and you can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can find our brand new Max Fun store featuring super ultra awesome stuff for you to spend your money on. <laughs> Let's put it simply, huh? If you have thoughts about this show, you can email me directly. My personal email address, my real email address, the one that my mom uses, is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.